Oh, and happy Valentine's Day, you know. Guys, you still have time to get something after church. It's not too late. Just a, a warning about that. Beginning in chapter 15, a little bit of liberty. Uh, this is just something you're going to have to get used to, I guess, if I'm going to be here. I tend to fluctuate this, the outline and, and those kinds of things as the week goes on. And so uh, if you have your, your, your bolt in there, we're really just going to look at points number two and three. Okay? So we're going to have a two-point sermon today. And uh, I'm going to start reading at verse 15. Um, Instead of verse 12. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. Found in chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, going to chapter 2 to verse 4. Paul says this. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia, to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And who has also put the seal, his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy For you stand firm in your faith. Chapter 2, verse 1. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction an anguish of heart, and with many tears. Not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. And again, we pray that you would um, be with us and that you would do a miracle. And by miracle, we pray that you would soften our hearts so that we may be able to receive your word and be changed people. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. In C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, we are introduced to a new character uh, in, in the Chronicles of Narnia stories called Eustace Scrub. If you've read the story, you know that Eustace was this sort of whiny, bratty kid that sort of always got his way, seemingly. I sort of think of Dudley, which would be Harry Potter's stepbrother in the movie Harry Potter. Um, but you just are sort of annoyed with him, and you're kind of looking for a way for him, at least in this story, to sort of fall off the ship. But as the story goes, Eustace, along with his more familiar cousins, Lucy and Edmund, are brought into Narnia and aboard Prince Caspian's ship, the Dawn Treader, which is the coolest name for a boat that I think I've still yet come in contact with, the Dawn Treader, where they search the seas for the seven lost lords. At one point, the ship drops anchor off a mysterious island, and Eustace wanders off by himself while the others work to fix a part of the ship. 
He just doesn't want to work. He doesn't want to help out. And so he wanders off, and he finds himself in this dragon's lair. Uh, and he actually finds the hoard this dragon was hiding, all kinds of treasure and everything. And he finds this bracelet, and he puts it on, and he falls asleep. Well, upon waking up, Eustace has become a dragon himself. And it's sort of at this point in the story, as, as you read it, you're, you're kind of thinking, yes, justice has come. Uh, this is great. Eustace got what's coming to him. This is, this is who he is anyways. And, uh, and now, um, those back on the ship, they have a really good excuse to just sort of leave him here because, I mean, a dragon can't fit on the ship anyways. And so you think this is what they're going to do. You think that they're going to leave him alone here at the island, but they don't. In fact, they go get him, if you recall the story. And Lewis writes this very interesting point. He says, But of course, what hung over everyone like a cloud was the problem of what to do with their dragon when they were ready to sail. Now, I'll be honest, I never really thought much of that until a close friend of mine commented on that part, saying, Eustace may have been a dragon and a poor fit for their mission, but he was their dragon. He belonged to the crew in spite of himself in all of his danger and all of his sorrow and in all of his inconvenience. And so the crew's dilemma about what to do with Eustace is really our dilemma here as the church. Our problem is not that we are in the company of just one or two different dragons. Our problem as the church is that we are a company of dragons. All people marked by our brokenness and our sin. Well, as we come to this section in 2 Corinthians, a lot of what Paul writes is actually very confusing. If you found yourself having trouble following Paul, wondering what it is that he's talking about, you would not be uh, in the minority, hopefully. It's very contextualized. A lot of it has to do with what has been going on with this relationship between him and the Corinthian church. He's hoping to win their confidence still as their apostle. That conversation is still happening. He's defending some changes in his plans to come visit that, cl- uh, that, that clearly upset them. And he's even in chapter 2 recalling an earlier letter that he wrote that caused him so much pain and so much anguish and tears. To say the least, this section is a bit choppy, but one that really highlights the realities of ministry and the church. And that is ministry is messy because life is messy. And if there's one question I have for Paul at this point in the letter, it's, Paul, why are you still hanging around with these people? Why are you still doing this? Like, why don't you just leave and go find another you know, fertile field where the harvest is plenty? Like, is it worth all of this? And it's a question that I'm sure that many of us have asked time and time before. If you spend any time within the church, if you spend any time around those you love, Why do it? And this is where Lewis is so helpful. Paul the Apostle doesn't just see life in the church as a fairly pleasant place, uh, I'll bet one or two dragons in the congregation. One or two sinful people. That if they were gone, things would be a whole lot better. No, Paul sees the church as he sees himself. As a company of dragons, as belonging to this new family that was shaped and marked out by the cross of Jesus. 
And what brought Paul into this family, which is this cross that we were ta- they were talking so much about uh, in this series, what brought Paul into this family is what also shapes him to love this family too. Despite its cost, despite its pain, despite its sorrow, its inconvenience, that all the other dragons might bring upon him. What I'm interested in doing this morning is helping us understand first what we mean when we use the word shapes as in the cross shapes our crisis. How does it shape us? What does it look like and does it have anything to do with why and how Paul is able to hang on even amidst people who are causing him so much pain? What would we have to learn from that? And to that end, I want to look at two things this morning that are printed in your bulletin that are really just conversation starters. Look, the best thing about doing a 12-week series is you don't have to get everything in on one or two sermons. So this is an attempt to move the ball down the field just a little bit to help us define our terms. And so the first thing I want to look at is the posture of the cross. The posture of the cross. And the second thing is the practice of the cross. So let's look at that first one, the posture of the cross in our lives. In 2010, counselor and author Paul David Tripp released a book on marriage titled, What Did You Expect? And at this point in time, you might expect the pastor to read a quote from that book, but I can't because I haven't read that book. And there's a, I'm a little bit scared, actually. I'm going to be honest. I read that title, and I know, I know exactly what he's about to say. I know what this book is about. I don't have to read it. I'm getting all that I need to get from it. By the title at this point. Maybe one day I'll have the courage to do it. But when I do premarital counseling with people, the first thing I do after I ask them, why do you want to get married? Is we begin talking about expectations. Right? We begin talking about what do you think this is going to be like? What are you expecting to get out of this? And then that leads to things like me having to say, do you know this is going to be hard? Which also leads to me saying something like, You're going to hate each other at some point in time in this relationship. Do you know that? Which then leads me to say something like, you're going to actually wake up and look at each other and declare war on one another in your heart. You're probably going to do that. This will be your sworn enemy. Which then also leads me to say, marriage will test you and challenge you. And don't be surprised if you begin to ask the question, did I marry the right person the day you get back from your honeymoon? Like that's part of this. Right? And you can imagine their faces, just awkward smiles. What is this guy saying? I thought this was supposed to be fun. How many more hours do we have to listen to this person before we can go and get married and go live our lives and never experience anything that he's talking about? Be the first couple to ever do that. Which is why, and this is a long illustration, but which is why more than premarital counseling, I love the six-month post-marital counseling. Come talk to me after six months, right? Now somebody's ready to listen. (laughs) Now somebody's ready to sort of say, okay, let's go back over those expectation things. And that's when I like to grab Tripp's book and just sort of sit it there on the table and let that title, what did you expect, just do all the counseling, right? (laughs) So far... Paul has been laboring and laboring, as we've said, with this church in Corinth. And in verse 20 to 22, 
perhaps the heart of this text, and maybe even one of, the, one of the hearts of this whole letter, Paul moves unannounced to the center of the gospel, and that is, in Jesus, all of God's promises find their fulfillment in him. And this ongoing conversation with the Corinthians, it's, it is a megaphone to say, Corinthians, please, Jesus is the resounding yes that you are looking for. Jesus is the resounding yes of God in all things. He is the yes to the resurrection. He, it is the yes to our salvation. And because of Jesus, God says yes to you too. Would you then learn to live in light of that? Would you then learn to live in light of that yes? But can you hear it? Are you ready to listen? When we talk about how the cross shapes us, the first thing we mean is that it brings humility into our lives. By showing us we really don't have it all figured out as if we even could. And we need the grace of God so bad. That is our posture, our posture in life as the cross takes deeper and richer meaning for us over the years, becomes the posture of humility that I carry with me into every circumstance and every situation and every conversation that I have that says to the other person, I'm ready to listen. I'm ready to hear you. I'm able to look beyond my own problems to see the person sitting across from me. Well, where does that come from for Paul? For Paul, it comes from recognizing a truth about himself that he could not see if it were not for God revealing it to him. It comes from the grace itself, from seeing that there isn't just a handful of bad people in this church that he's ministering to, and that the rest are basically good and pleasant. That there aren't one or two dragons, as it were, in the room. And if we could just sort of get the pastoral staff to recognize them and do their jobs, then we would have a great church. No, it's coming to terms with who you truly are. That I am part of this messy bunch too. Or as G.K. Chesterton, who I love, so famously answered when asked the question, what is wrong with the world? He simply wrote, I am. I am. And Paul is able to say that about himself, too. He knows and sees himself, apostleship and all, in the same boat as his fellow sinners. And this creates a posture that allows him to love in the most difficult of situations and circumstances. A question for us, for this first point, are we a people defined by our humility? We talked about that a little bit in Sunday school. Are we a people defined by our readiness to listen? And look, that's not a question that isn't, of course, you know, we're not in some senses. But are we more importantly a people that are willing to live off of and out of the grace of God that says yes to you in Jesus? That that would be the starting place for the possibility of having this posture that Paul cultivates of humility as we enter into one another's lives. This is where Paul starts, and this is where we must start also. The posture of the cross, humility, as we labor with people in the church. Second, the practice of the cross in our lives. 
we're not only going to need to take on the posture of the cross as we move through this book or this letter um, towards one another, we're also going to have to make the cross our practice. And here's what I mean by that. Typically, when we think of the cross of Jesus or when we look upon it maybe at a museum or in someone's house, if it's a picture on, on the wall, we think about the cross and we think about it as the means or the instrument of our salvation. It is the way that Jesus has uh, atoned for our sin, that God has brought us near to him. Right? This is the, the, the icon, if you will, of our faith that makes it our faith. This is how life is possible for us. This is how salvation is possible for us. And we look at that and it becomes a memory or a remembrance of those truths. And that is right. It would be true and good and right for it to be that. But it would be a mistake if that's all that it was for us. It would be a mistake if the cross of Jesus was only something that reminded us of our salvation. And as Paul moves further and further into um, relationship with this church, what he begins to demonstrate to us is that the cross cannot just be a memory for us. It cannot just be a remembrance, but it must also be our practice, which is what Jesus intended for it to be in the first place. And what do I mean by practice? is that we have to begin to take on in our lives the practice of dying. This may not be a physical death, but it's certainly a spiritual one. The practice of dying to ourselves so that somebody else might flourish. The practice of dying to ourselves so that something new might be made. So something new might be created. That reconciliation, a theme that will be strong throughout this entire letter, might be made possible. Nothing can change. Nothing can be made new in God's economy without something dying first. That is the practice of the cross in our lives. Now, at this time, I want to come clean with something. It's been about six months. I feel like we have the relational equity to do so. If you're visiting for the first time, I'm sorry. But I think it's important that I disclose to you that Ada and I might be fans of the Real Housewives reality show on Bravo. (laughs) Specifically Orange County and Beverly Hills. Sorry if this totally ruins things for you. Um, But I think our relationship can handle it, and I think, more importantly, it will help serve an illustration and make this point very well. If you have seen an episode or haven't, Lord bless you. If you've seen one, you've seen them all, right? It is the train wreck that you just can't look away from. But it's nothing but nauseating drama and superficial lifestyles. We love to make jokes about these people. We love to laugh at them. Let's put a camera in some really, really wealthy people's lives who have way too much time on their hands, who drink throughout the entire day, um, go to dinner with one another, end the night screaming and crying, go to bed, wake up, do it all over again, film it, put it on TV, and millions of people will sit and watch this. Like, who would watch this stuff, you know? This is the housewives. But if you do watch the show, if you've caught just a glimpse of it, you know that what would save all of the hurt, what would save all of the anger, the tears, all of it would stop. All the fighting, everything. In fact, the show would cancel 
if this were to happen, if one person, if just one person at any given moment would die to themselves, would say, I'm sorry, the drama would end. If one person would die to their ambition of not having to be defined by how much money they make or what they do and how what they do makes them who they are, everything would cease. If one person would die to their pride, look, I don't have to be right all the time. If one person would die to their dreams of saying, I have to be in this house, in this part of the neighborhood, and be with these people and socialize with those people. If one person would just die to that dream, all of the hurt and the anger and the frustration and the drama would end. If one person would just die to the paralyzing drive of constantly trying to control their reputation and what other people think about them in the show, it would be a picture of heaven all of a sudden. The drama would end. The pain would end. People would stop hurting one another over and over. And more importantly, more importantly, something new and beautiful would be created. Now, as I watch this, Occasionally. And maybe this is what draws me in. I see the church so well. I see the parts of the church that I don't want to see because we cover it up a little better. But I see the church. I see this group of people that actually has the ability to make things new by dying to themselves. We are Jesus' instrument of reconciliation in this world. But that message only comes by, by, by people, individuals, who have been bought by Jesus, willing to surrender to someone else. Learning and modeling what it looks like to lay down our own ambitions, lay down our own pride, to lay down our own dreams and our own care of what other people think of us so that someone else might flourish. This is the practice of the cross in our lives. It's the practice of dying. It's not romantic. It's not fun. No one is making a bestseller out of dying well. I haven't seen that at least. But it's how real change happens. It's how real change is going to happen for the church in Corinth. It's how real change is going to happen for us. As we take on this cross and how it shapes our lives in all of its circumstances. For Paul, it's no different. In all of the drama that he's experiencing, and all the misunderstandings, the stubbornness, the lies and manipulation that he is experiencing as an apostle, as you just read this, I mean, there's so much going on in this letter that we just read. Of all kinds of hurt. Of all kinds of just misunderstandings. Look, Paul changes his plans. That's all he does. He changed his plans 2,000 years ago because he felt like it was better that he didn't come back a second time. And now there's a church that's upset with him, questioned his apostleship, and is not tithing anymore. And it's found its way in the book of the Bible that we are now reading as our Sunday school and church lesson today. This is how difficult this is. That, that life is messy, that things happen, and that this is to be expected. It, it, it's kind of, it kind of became humorous to me in, in some sense over the week, reading that this is what found its way into the Bible. This is what's caused this pain. It's a misunderstanding. And if we have a prayer about answering that, of about being the church and the church being and fulfilling the mission that's called to be, 
That cannot happen without the practice of the cross in our lives. Without dying to the people that we want to be or who we think that we are. Paul would have no problem with me saying, look, do you know who I am? I am an apostle. I'm out of here. I will go somewhere else. But the fact that he doesn't is because he has died that death already. To love the church, to, be, to, to love others, requires me to take the resume of who I think I am and who I want to be and to burn it. And to replace it with the resume of the cross of Jesus that sees me too belonging to a company of dragons, but says, do you know how much you're loved? That's who you are. This is what it means to also live in light of that resounding yes that we have in Jesus from God. This is the practice of the cross, how the cross shapes us. It's dying so that something new may be made. Why do we do this? Maybe more importantly, how? How do we do this going forward? I mean, this is a, this is a huge task, to say the least. It's a huge calling that the church has. How do we live out of the posture and the practice of the, of the cross? <clears throat> well, one of the ways I want to leave you, one of the things I want to leave you with is that the way that we do this is that we do live out of the resounding yes of verse 20, 20 there in your text. The resounding yes of God to us in Jesus, that all of his promises, that all the promises of God find their yes in him. In other words, in other words, the way we do this is that we see that the grace of God is sufficient for the work of God in our lives. There's no better example of this. There's no better example of the how and the why than one of the most favorite stories of all time that is Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. I'm sure this illustration has been used before, but I, I love it so much. You're going to hear it again. Um, but if, you ha- if you've seen the movie or you read the book, you know that uh, the story begins with the main character, Jean Valjean, who has been released from prison, a 19-year sentence, um, where he has been kept in prison for numerous reasons, tried to escape many times as well. But as he's been released, he has the tag of ex-con on him. And so because of that, nobody's willing to take him in. Nobody's willing to take a chance on him. Nobody's willing to feed him or shelter him. And so as he goes from place to place, growing more anger and bitter at this world, he seems to have no other place to, to turn until he finds this church, until he finds this bishop who brings him in, who gives him shelter, who gives him a meal, and he basically restores a part of his dignity that has been gone for so long. Well, in the middle of the night, Valjean wakes up and perhaps maybe falling back on old habits, decides to leave. And as he leaves, he steals the silverware of this bishop. Well, soon after, Valjean is captured by the police. And of course, having the silver, they think he definitely stole this. And so they brought him back to the bishop's house where they are sure to get a plea of guilty from the bishop. But if we know the story, you know how the bishop responds. In a moment of beautiful, lavish, undeserved grace, the bishop covers over Jean Valjean's sin. He tells him, or the police, that the silver, get this, was actually a gift. And he begins to sort of dialogue with Valjean and say, look, you, you left so early, you forgot the candlesticks. And you're just sort of left like, what is going on? In this moment, though... That's why it's so beautiful. A debt is canceled. Sin is forgiven. Mercy is shown. And it starts to radically change Jean Valjean. 
He becomes this remarkably humble, sacrificial man of character who gives his life to loving others. In other words, he becomes something new that the world has never seen before. Why does Jean Valjean change? Why does Jean Valjean's character become marked by humility and sacrificial living? It's because of the grace and mercy bestowed upon him by the bishop. That's why. But how? How does he keep going? How does he keep living this way? And the answer is the same. It's because of the grace and the mercy bestowed upon him by the bishop. In other words, the how and the why for Jean is wrapped up in the resounding yes that he receives that day by the bishop standing there with the silverware with the police. And the same is true for us this morning as we begin to connect the dots about the resounding yes that we have from our Father in Jesus. That God looks at you and though you do not deserve it, says yes because of who Jesus is. And what we love about the relationship in that story between Valjean and the bishop is the same thing that we have between our relationship between God and ourselves because of Jesus. And when you have that... Right? When you begin to have your life revolve around that promise, that yes, that is poured all over you. As Paul so desperately longs for the church in Corinth to do, then our posture comes naturally. And our dying, joyful. The grace of God always equips us to do the work of God in and amongst his church, and throughout his world. The church in Corinth is going to need God's grace. Paul is going to need God's grace with these people. And they're going to need it with him too. But we're going to need it with each other as we continue to go forward in this letter. And let me say this. There is absolutely nothing easy about the posture and practice of the cross in our lives. There's nothing easy about what the church is called to do and what Jesus is calling us to do. As he says to each of us, will you take up your cross and follow me? As a matter of fact, I'm just going to go ahead and say it is impossible. It is impossible. And to sort of stay with Chesterton today, this is one of my favorite quotes of his. He says, my point is that the world did not tire of the church's ideal because of its reality. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and it has been left untried. You and I experience that on a daily basis, especially if you have kids, right? It is impossible. It is difficult at best unless... Unless the grace of God enters into that life with us. And that's Paul's hope and his message for the people in Corinth. That because of the grace of God, we now have a chance, so to speak. To be the people in the church that we were called to be. So don't be discouraged that this doesn't come naturally to you. Don't be discouraged that there isn't joy at first and you're dying. The Lord Jesus will go with you. And he will be with you and he will remind you that even in those moments where you feel like you are an utter failure, his yes to you is still true. That is the grace of God 
in your life and how it equips us to do the work of God the next day. Let me leave you with this question. If we are to be the people of God, if we are then to find ourselves, our entire lives revolved around the question, or not the question, but the the yes of who God says we are in Jesus. If we are to live in light of that yes, what other yes in this world then, perhaps even this morning, are you looking to Outside of God's yes to you in Christ. What would it look like to replace all the other yeses that you desire from those you love, from those you desire your, their approval, whatever it is? What would it look like to take those and begin to replace it with the yes that we get on the cross from God? It would look like resurrection. It would look like something new. And it would look like, more importantly, something this world has never, ever seen before. That's the church. That's who we're called to be. This is how the cross comes into our life and it shapes us, both its posture and its practice. And it is the hope and the promise that Paul has for the people in Corinth that this is who they will be. And it's also our promise as well. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for... This book, we thank you for Paul, and we pray that as we reflect upon your cross, we think about how it enters and shapes our life. We think of the daunting task is to be the church, to be the people you've called us to be, that our lives would be shaped by your cross in both humility and in dying. Lord, we cannot do this. We are fools to think that we can. Would you, by your mighty grace, Empower us to live this way so that we might see not just our own lives changed, but the lives of others. So we may see something new spring up, that we may begin to taste resurrection and see it foreshadowed in a way uh, that would just give us a hope and a joy that would fill not just our homes, but our churches and our communities. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.